The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Thank you for joining us for this Knowledge at Wharton audio podcast. I'm Peter Bowman, your host of this episode here at the Wharton Studios, located in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. We are all certainly familiar with the generation known as the Baby Boomers, that unprecedented global population spike generally identified between the years 1948 and 1964. But what you may not consider is that in the United States alone, there are over 77 million people in the Boomer market, and unfortunately, they are not getting any younger. The boomers now represent an enormous group in serious need of financial services, and meeting this great demand for wealth management is not as simple as one may think. Joining us today is Wharton Professor of Insurance and Risk Management, Olivia Mitchell. Also here with us is Mr. Kip Condren, President and Chief Executive Officer of AXA Financial Incorporated, a global leader in financial management services. With over 100,000 employees worldwide, AXA services more than 50 million customers with an array of financial products and services all under one global brand. Thank you, Professor Mitchell and Mr. Condren, for joining us today. I'm delighted to have you both here at the Knowledge at Wharton Studios. Professor Mitchell, perhaps we can first start with you by getting a brief understanding of what the baby boomer market is facing today, particularly in the financial space of both retirement and wealth management. Professor Mitchell? The situation facing the baby boomers is very different from that facing their parents. The risks are much greater. The uncertainties are terrific. Um, For example, Social Security and Medicare face tremendous insolvency problems. The capital market is much more globally integrated, more volatile, and therefore baby boomers really have a very great challenge facing them, one quite distinct from what their precursor generations confronted. Right. Now, Kip, your business obviously is a global uh, company. What what services do you provide, I guess, in the United States alone for the baby boomers in this market? Yeah, well, basically, uh, our business is the business of providing guarantees. And, and we provide guaranteed income for people at retirement. We provide guaranteed death benefits. And, and so as an insurance company, you typically think, well, what you guys do is life insurance and annuities. But what we really do is take the risk off of an individual's personal balance sheet put it on ours, pool it with others, and, and find ways to hedge it in the marketplace so that we can we can provide some comfort to these baby boomers as they're approaching retirement. And how has your services changed, I guess, and evolved with the baby boomers getting older? Are you finding it a different sales process now to reach them and to, to market to them and also to service them? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that, that there's become a realization. You know, when you think about, about baby boomers today and, and you, you say, what's their biggest fear? Their biggest fear is that they're going to run out of money. And, and and so what we do is we provide guarantees so that they'll have a stream of income for life regardless of how long they live. And the boomers generally right now do have a lot of money. Is that correct? Or well, some do and some, some don't. don't. Right. But I guess on an average, would you say that they're a, is it a wealthy population? Uh, I think it's tiered, and Olivia probably would have some comments on this. But I, but I think that there are people uh, at one end of the spectrum who plan for retirement and worry about running out, but they have done some good planning. Right. At the other end of the spectrum, you have people who have done very little planning and have accumulated very little and uh, don't know what they're going to do. Right. The research shows that boomers, on average, are about at the same position financially as their previous generations. However, they face much greater uncertainty. So, for example, my parents' generation had Social Security to look forward to. What we know today is Social Security is running short of financing. Um, My parents' generation benefited from a huge run-up in the value of their houses. 
What we don't know looking forward is how secure is that housing asset. Um, Healthcare is much more uncertain going forward. The good news is we're going to live much longer. The bad news is it's going to be that much more expensive to take care of our healthcare needs. So I identify along a number of spectrums new risks or graver risks that boomers are facing. And that's where I think the work that KIPP is doing is so important to talk about protecting against those risks. Right. What are the barriers psychologically, I guess, to penetrate the market? Uh, is there a fear factor there that's underlying with uh, the, the population? Are, do they need to be educated more than, than other sales processes? Well, I, I think they surely need to be educated more, and, and that's the one thing that we found about, about this particular population. They're smart. Uh, they're better educated than their parents were about financial issues, but they want to be smart and make smart personal decisions. They don't want to be told what to do, but they want to be educated so that they can make smart decisions. What we've found is that, that the big problem is that the conventional wisdom is wrong. The conventional wisdom is that as you get older, you should become more conservative in your investment portfolio. So, mm-hmm. so as I go into my 50s and on approaching 60, let's say 65 is the magic date, uh, the conventional wisdom is I should make, start making my investment portfolio more and more conservative. Right. Yet a couple age 60 today uh, has a 62% probability that one of them will be alive past age 90. Wow. So we're not planning for 15 years. We're planning right. for 30 years or more. And so if you go back 30 years ago to 1976, you had an inflationary environment that was very different. You had you've, If you go through the last 30 years, uh, you couldn't possibly have made your investments in fixed income securities sure. and have hedged yourself against inflation. It's funny because I look at that 65, that magic number, and I think that's going to have to slide north because I look at those people, and they're active as can be. I mean, entrepreneurially, education-wise, they're, they're, some of them are going back to school, I'm saying. Well, the 65 came about from Benjamin Disraeli, I think, uh, who, who set that date in Germany uh, it, uh, 100 years ago because right. 65 was the life expectancy at that uh, point in time. <laughs> so it's the official retirement. Yeah. In the U.S., we've already started to push on that retirement age frontier along a number of fronts. For example, the Social Security Administration has moved the full or normal retirement age for getting full benefits to 67. And so boomers cannot count on the old-fashioned retirement plan anymore at 65 or younger. It will probably have to be pushed up even further. Um, if we go back to when Social Security was created, uh, age 65 was selected as the life expectancy. Now we would have to talk about age 80 as the wow. possible retirement age. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should or could do that, but I do believe, and this is what we've been pushing, is I do believe that we have to encourage people to work longer because just a new, another two, three, four, five years of work can really alleviate some of the shortfalls later on in With retirement. With some of those institutions, like you mentioned, the Social Security, I guess pensions, um, Medicare, things like that, those institutions are changing, I would imagine, the impact to the uh, boomers. The boomers are very much um, influencing the solvency of Medicare and Social Security. There's no question about that. And indeed, those systems will be running short of money in the near term. It's not something that's 50 years away. It's going to be starting in about 10 years. Um, So we do have to focus on greater risk management and risk prevention and mitigation. If we can just work a few more years now, save a little more, invest a little more wisely, um, and protect against some of the bigger risks, we're going to be a whole lot happier when we're 85 or 90. I think that that, uh, retirement means different things to different people today. You know, if we think of our parents' generation, they retired from whatever they did, and they didn't work anymore. 
Today, people retire usually or often to something, and they'll, and they'll have a second career or a second interest in life. Uh, and so people aren't, you know, to Olivia's point, they may not continue to work in the same places they've worked for most of their career, even in the same area of interest, but they will go do something, A, to make up the shortfall financially, but also they're healthier. And and right. they, and they're living longer, and they and they want to keep active, and sure. so so keeping a f- sort of finger in the pie is something that a lot of people care about. Do you see as an international resource uh, a differentiation between cultures, say in the United States, baby boomers versus say in Europe? Is it a different mind cell? Is it a different process there? Uh, it, it, there are a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. Okay. The similarities are that there are boomers everywhere, uh, all around the world, post World War II baby boomers, and. And the need for retirement planning is universal. However, the, the, when you look at the makeup country by country, we probably have in the U.S. the most sophisticated retirement systems of almost anywhere in the world. There are From few, a protection standpoint? Yes. Because of our, uh, of our corporate structure with corporate pension plans and 401k plans and 403b plans and so forth, our, our, our population has more private sector money put away for their retirement, where in a lot of other countries, there's a lot of public sector money supporting uh, people for retirement, uh, but they haven't put the kinds of incentives and and systems in place that we have. So so the challenges country by country are are, are rather different as to how you solve the the need that individuals have as they're approaching retirement. We're we're doing something in our company because we are a global company where we're taking this initiative we call at retirement which which is a if you will it's a it's a a model for advising people about making smart decisions at retirement and we're taking this model uh and rolling it out across the world but we're adapting it uh, country by country because every country's needs are different and every country's sort of demographics and and sure. and, and uh, social makeup is different. So it's a, it's a fascinating challenge actually because uh, we've never done this inside our company before. I'm not sure anyone's ever done it at all. And right. so trying to figure out how to take a universal problem like satisfying people's financial needs at retirement and looking at it from a global perspective rather than just a domestic perspective takes on a whole lot of other issues that you've got to deal with. Sure. If I could just add to that, one of the things that we've realized looking around the world is that different countries have different institutional structures, and sometimes they facilitate retirement planning and retirement protection, sometimes they don't. As an instance of that, in Japan, we see that most older people, like in many countries, have a house. They have a lot of money invested in their dwelling, Mm -hmm. Um, but they don't have many other assets, and they're not very diversified. So one of the questions might be how to develop financial markets and new financial products to help people tap into those assets. Mm. So an example in the Japanese case would be to try to develop a reverse mortgage market. So you can live in the house but and get the services from, from the house, sure. but by the same token have some protection from running out of money. How does real estate uh, and the retirement situation play in the United States? Is it a big factor? Most older Americans do own a house. It's a very key part of their retirement portfolio. Um, Past experience has suggested that people tend to hang on to their house until the bitter end, until there's a death in the family or they have to move move into a nursing home. And so one of the challenges in the U.S. as well is, again, how to develop means to let people access that equity to finance their retirement. 
while not forcing them to move until they absolutely have to. Right. And there's a lot of challenges around that because the, the concept of reverse mortgages is wonderful. If I have a million-dollar house and I borrow 500000 I can create income for myself and sure. settle up the debt at the time of my death and, and so forth. The, the, the problems with it are that uh, on the front end, it tends to be expensive for the client. Uh, because there are a lot of mouths at the trough. There's the mortgage people. Sure. There's the investment people. A lot of fees. A lot of fees. <laughs> and and uh, that's a challenge. And then secondly, you have the power of compound interest working against you. Sure. Uh, and, and that's a problem. So so the, this debt that keeps uh, growing, if you want to think of it in those terms, right. uh, is, is a real significant issue. And so there's a lot of work being done on reverse mortgages. There are some in the marketplace today. It's not, at least in the U.S., it's not yet... Uh, something that's hit the mainstream very, very well because I, I, I think the product structure is still a little bit flawed. And it's one thing that we're doing a lot of uh, analytical work on right now to see if there's a design sure. that can be beneficial to the client, uh, not create an environment where the heirs are going to feel like someone took advantage of their parents, right. which is always a, an issue here, I think. And, and uh, so there are a lot of challenges around it. Uh, it it's, but it's, it's sort of like the Holy Grail. If you could figure out how retired couple could continue to live in their house and create liquidity and have enough <laughs> income, you, you know, you, uh, maybe done. you get the prize for uh, figuring out retirement or something. So exactly. we're working on it. On the psychological side, again, do you find that the market, uh, there's got to be a group that's very stubborn that wants to just defer the whole thought of retirement. What do you say to those people? And how do you, how do you get them to kind of open the door to educate them that, boy, you really do need to start planning. And the more you push it off, the more pain you're going to feel later on in life. Uh, well, I think you have to remind them that they're going to live for a long time. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that is the one piece that people are uh, shocked at. For example, people tend to think if I'm 65, I've got a 15-year life expectancy because, you know, life expectancies for children born today are somewhere around 80 years. But, but the fact is that if you clear it on up to age 65, your life expectancy <laughs> is, is, is a lot longer. Sure. And so uh, – and, and, and you get into the probabilities because – because what we found is, go, go back to the point I made a little earlier, if, if you're a couple age 65, there's a 62% probability that one of you is going to live past age 90. That's right. two, your 2000 data, the most current data we have. 1970 data, you had a 40% probability that one of you what was going to live. What a shift, yeah. Yeah, and so people are living longer. And, and we're seeing, you know, one of the things that we have to worry about is managing what, what is now a term that people never talked about before, which is called longevity risk. We have to manage the risk of guaranteeing income for people who are going to live longer than we anticipated that they might live. And right. so so those kinds of, of uh, risk management challenges for companies like ours are, are very uh, robust. Do you see a big difference in the post-boomers uh, in, in that generation, the next generation that's, came, you know, that's coming up? Are they, uh, is there a different attitude there with money and, and retirement that you see? I think it's starting to emerge. I think that the next generation is seeing the boomer parents, their boomer parents, take care of the kids plus the elderly in the sandwich that uh, group that, that they're in. Right. Um, and so there is some evidence that they're beginning to pay more attention. I know as a teacher and as a parent, I certainly try to educate everyone under the age of 30 about all these problems. Sure. But I think there is a lot of education. In particular, younger people tend to think they're immortal, that, you know, that, that nothing will ever befall them. Once you start getting into your 40s, maybe 50s, you realize health problems become an issue. You start to be, take some, uh, hopefully, some responsibility for retirement planning. But there's a tremendous amount of 
illusion around still. Um, I, I call it lump sum illusion. People think they have $100,000 in their 401k plan and feel rich. Mm. And they don't realize that there's a reasonable chance they're going to live 30 years with that sum of money. It's not going to boil down to very much. Um, and I think a lot of the uh, online retirement calculators contribute to that because they ask you your age and your sex, and then they spit out a number. You're going to live for 14 more years, right. never incorporating the possibility, right. the very high probability that you may live to be 100, right. or if you're a woman, 110. Mm -hmm. And so these are the areas where we really do have to educate the populace. But I want to pick up on the lump sum illusion because it, it's it's a problem in the way that the financial industry has has taught people to think you know we we've developed uh retirement plans uh defined contribution plans which pay off in a lump sum uh and and we sell life insurance to people in a lump sum and people aren't equipped to really make the calculation and the conversion from a lump sum to income because it's all about income right and so one of the things that that we've been doing in our industry is is putting income floors under lump sum calculations. So, so for example, in, in, in one of the products that, that our industry uh, delivers to the marketplace, it's, it's called withdrawal, uh, uh, withdrawal benefit for life. It's say a 65-year-old could put $100,000 into one of these products and have a guarantee to be able to withdraw 5% of the principal for life and never run out of money. Mm -hmm. And they have, a, they have a balanced investment portfolio, but a significant percentage of equities, which will allow right. some, for some growth. Once a year, if their portfolio goes up in value, they can reset at a higher amount the value upon which that 5% is calculated. So if their portfolio went up in the second year to $110,000, they'd set it at 100, 5% of 110000 It would never go lower. And, and It kind of readjusts it, it, it itself. Re, it can readjust, assuming right. that, the, that the price goes up. So, so basically, one of the big problems we have here is how do I, how do I create an inflationary hedge for myself during retirement? Mm -hmm. And- and if I take a fixed income solution, uh, I'm locked at whatever that amount is, and that's the problem of, of inflation. And the beauty of these products that we in our industry have worked hard to be creative about designing, uh, the beauty of these products is that they create an environment where people have an ability to, to, to transfer their lump sum into an income stream, but not lock it in at a fixed rate, but rather get an opportunity to get a higher rate if, if, if markets change. I was just going to pick up on the inflation theme briefly because, for one thing, many people don't understand inflation. They discount the impact it will have on their um, well-being 20, 30, maybe 40 years into retirement. The second factor people don't understand is the extra hit that medical care cost inflation will take, uh, the toll it will take on their well-being. And so once again, thinking about the downstream consequences of needing long-term care, uh, nursing home care, sure. the downstream uh, costs of pharmaceutical uh, drugs and so forth. All these are concepts that today's boomers just aren't focusing on enough. Right. And so part of the educational mission is, again, to get people to begin to estimate what it will take 
to maintain their lifestyle sure. in retirement, even though prices are going up. No, it's a very good point because if you if you look at say a three percent inflationary environment and you're going off into retirement, your inclination is to plan for a three percent inflation. Yeah, but, but if medical expenses are going up ten percent, that's a bigger share of your wallet uh, than it is of the thirty five year old's wallet. So sure. so so you're not planning for a three percent inflation rate. You're probably planning for a six or seven percent inflation rate, right. and that's a whole different planning process that people have to be cognizant of. Absolutely. Well, Kip Condrum, Professor Mitchell, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and we look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks a lot. Take care. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.